Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We pray that your spirit will join us, that our hearts and minds will join together in unity and love and affirmation for you. We pray for our class around the globe that are sharing this message about you in their homes. We pray that you will bless their endeavors and open avenues for communication, that the truth about you will lighten this world, and we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 11 in our quarterly background characters in the Old Testament. And the lesson title this week is The Widow of Zarephath, uh, The Leap of Faith. And let's, let's set the setting uh, for what's going on and where we are in, in, the, in the chronology of history. It's about 18, between 1860 and 1850 B.C. Ahab is king of Israel and is married to Jezebel, who's the daughter of the king of Tyre. Under her influence, Baal worship is re- receiving a resurgence uh, in uh, Israel. Now, the Hebrew noun Baal or Baal or Baal, uh, whichever way you want to say it, and it's said different ways, means master, possessor, or husband. And used with su- suffixes such as Baal Peor or Baal Berith, the word may have retained some of its original sense. But uh, in general, the, the proper noun Baal or Baal uh, is the proper name in the Old Testament refers to the specific deity Hadad, the West Semitic storm god, most important deity in the Canaanite pantheon. Yahweh was master and husband of Israel, and therefore the Israelites called Yahweh Baal. Did you all know that? Yeah. In all innocence, but naturally this practice led to confusion in the worship of Yahweh with the Baal rituals and uh, presently became essential to call him by a different name. And in Hosea 2.16, they propose a different name where they refer to God as a husband of Israel, and it's the word is. Uh, another word meaning husband. Once the title Baal is no longer applied to Yahweh, personal names which had incorporated Baal um, uh, came to be renamed with uh, replacing Baal with the Hebrew word boset, which means shame. And such names as Esh Baal and Merah Baal uh, were renamed, and these same people were now known as Ish, uh, Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. And you've heard of those. They used to have Baal in their name, now they don't. Uh, Baal is the, the weather god associated with thunderstorms, rain, and therefore fertility. At Rash Shamra, Baal was called the son of Dagon, uh, a fact not easily harmonized with the more general notion that El, E-L-L, was the sire or the father of all the Canaanite gods. Also known as Hadad, Baal was called the prince, the prince powerful, the rider of the clouds, which was a name given to God in Psalm 68.4. So in Psalm 68.4, you'll see that God is called the rider of clouds. At Raz Shamra, Baal's consort or wife was evidently also his sister named Anat. Now, in Greek mythos, if you're familiar with Greek mythos, uh, Philos in Greek mythos brought the Baal concept. And, and anybody know what Baal was called in Greek mythology? the god of storm and clouds and lightning, Zeus. Zeus, Baal Baal was the same god, worshipped in Greek mythos as Zeus, and as Baal married his sister Annette, Zeus married his sister Hera. 
So Zeus, of course, is the god of thunder and lightning. Let's, uh, for a moment, though, let's try to get your mind around what the Israelites were dealing with and why there was such confusion about uh, worshiping Yahweh and, and how Satan takes and incorporates distorted ideas uh, to get our minds off the true God. Remember, in, the, in, their, in their mythology, El, E-L, was the father of all the gods, including the father of Baal. The El, ancient Semitic name for deity, uh, means power, and it was used by the Hebrews, generally in a poetic sense, to denote the true God of Israel. Uh, The same word was used for the uh, senior Canaanite God, uh, and let's see, okay, and he was, and and this senior God, El, was not as active in human and earthly activities as was Baal. Baal was the son of El, and came to earth and was active and would fight um, with some of the other um, gods on earth. We'll come to that in just a moment. El, associated in Hebrew culture, was, was associated with names to Yahweh such as El Shaddai. You've heard of El Shaddai. Uh, Bethel was a place of El, a city where they worshipped El, uh, the Israelites. Eliezer was, uh, of course, the son of, of uh, Aaron, and was the high, high priest, and it was honoring El. Daniel uh, also incorporates the name El into his name. And so El was the name of the father of all the pantheon of pagan gods, but also the name used hundreds of times in the Old Testament referring to the God of Israel. Back to Baal. The phenomenon associated with thunderstorms are closely linked to Baal. Baal was... Uh, said to appoint the seasons of rain. Clouds were thought to be part of his entourage. Lightning was his weapon. Do you see how that also sounds like Zeus? Okay, same God. Uh, the windows of Baal's palace uh, were thought to uh, correspond to the openings in the clouds through which rain flowed. And rain was important to the Canaanite agricultural community, and thus he was also considered to be the god of fertility and a prodigious lover and giver of abundance. In the uh, literature uh, from that time, they preserve a cycle of myths in which Baal, the son of El, uh, is fighting against various other gods such as Lotan, also in scripture known as Leviathan, the snake of evil. Uh, Baal is fighting against this, uh, this evil serpent. And he struggles against other adversaries, Yam, which is the sea god, and Mot, which is death. And it is uh, in their myth- mythos that Baal came from El, the son of El, came to earth and fought against these other gods and was killed but resurrected, and Baal came back to life. And thus they celebrate um, these uh, winter solstice where the sun drops to its lowest point and it's symbolic of the days get shorter, 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 of the son of, of El, being Baal, dying, but then as the days get longer, he rises from the dead, and you see how this is all woven in. Um, the cult of Baal was widespread in Syro. Palestinian uh, world and became the focus of the Israelite religious animosity. Uh, we hear the cult of Baal in numerous local manifestations such as Baal of the Covenant at Shechem, Baal Peor, uh, and Baal, Baal Zebub, which means uh, Lord of the Flies. So, with all these thoughts in mind, uh, in the context of the day, imagine that you were an Israelite. Now, you had a Bible in your home you could go and refer to regularly and study, correct? No scripture. No scripture. Okay, no scripture. Uh, do you see how Satan works to corrupt the plan of God and take these ideas and paganize them so that it confuses minds? Do you think if you were in Israel where the true God, El, 
is also known as the El, the father of Baal, and Baal or Baal is also uh, a term that they initially referred to as the husband and, and uh, uh, protector of Israel. Do you see how you might have some confusion on who you're worshiping? Yeah. If Jesus today were not only the the Savior and the one we worship, but if, if that name was also the name given to a myriad of false gods today and other people worshiping Buddha, they didn't worship Buddha, they worshiped Jesus. But all the ideas associated with Buddha are the same, they just call him Jesus. Or the Rastafarians, who they worship, they, they worship Jesus. But all the ideas associated with their deity are the same, they just call him Jesus. Do you think it could be confusing for people today if everybody was worshiping a being called Jesus, but they have all these different things going on? Possible? Oh, he said that's what's happening today. I was going to ask, do we have any problems like that today? Any problems like that today? Everywhere. Everywhere. Anybody want to give an example? How many Protestant religions are there? How many Protestant religions are there? They all worship a different God. All worship a different God. How about within Adventism? One God? No. <laughs> Is there more than one God within our church? Yes. A couple of yeses. Anybody think not? Absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. What, what evidence would you suggest for that? Well, my mother, for one, is good evidence. She, she, her God is a very judgmental God. will punish anyone who gets out of line very quickly and as stern as necessary. So what you're suggesting is that we can't tell the true God by the um, name we use to call him. That, that's not a good method to, to differentiate between the true God and a false God. It's got to be characteristics. Characteristics. Well, this is out of a, a book called Faith I Live By, uh, written by one of the founders of our church, uh, Ellen White, and this is what she said. Speaking of Christians, thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily serving a false god as were the servants of Baal. Are we worshiping the true God as he is revealed in his word, in Christ, in nature? Or are we adoring some philosophical idol enshrined in his place? God is a God of truth. Justice and mercy are the attributes of his throne. He is a God of love, of pity, of tender compassion. Thus he is represented in his Son, our Savior. He is a God of patience and long-suffering. If such is the being whom we adore, to whose character we are seeking to assimilate, we are worshiping the true God. Yeah, do you hear what, what, what she suggests to us is the way we tell? Is this God that you just heard described of a love, of pity, of tender compassion, of mercy, of patience, is this the God that we're worshiping? Have other God concepts entered Christianity that... that that would, would counter such a loving and beneficent being. Yes. That would go against it, yeah. Do we gain some insight from ancient Israel's history into how and why the truth about God takes time to eradicate the distortions in man's mind? You see, think about ancient Israel. Do you see the long... And this is what... When you look at the Old Testament Scriptures and you're reading Old Testament Scriptures, consider, consider the, what God is dealing with. 
He is dealing with this group of people who have been confused by Baal worship, who have, who have been confused by the, the fact they call God by Baal and they call God by El and that, and that El is the father of Baal and Baal is, is, has come and fought with, with Yam and, and the sea god and died and rose again. And do you see how confusing all these ideas are in their mind? Did it take time for God to work these ideas out of their mind? What about today? What advantage do we have today in fighting the spiritual battle, this battle over truth about God? You know, it says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, we, we don't wage war like the world does. Our, our weapons destroy everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Do we have weapons today they didn't have back then? More truth. More truth. And each one of us, hopefully, has this in our possession. We have, a, we have a Bible. These Israelites back then, they, they didn't have Scripture they could have and study every day. Could, did they? Would it make it harder for you to tell the truth from a lie if you had no Scripture? Yes. Yes, we have great advantage. But Tim, wouldn't you say most of these churches are using that book to uh, prove their points and show the God that they worship? Uh, yes and no, actually. I say yes and no. I think some of the theologians use this book, like the Pharisees used this book in their day, and they were quote scripture left and right. But that yet, uh, remember what Christ said to them: "You you search the you know you 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 search the the word because in this you think you find eternal life, but these are they which teach of me." So yes, I think many many look at the look at the word through the lens of a code book to find the secret uh, do's and don'ts we're supposed to not not do and things we're supposed to do, and then if we do all the right behaviors, then we can assure ourselves of eternal life. That the Pharisees were doing, and others look at the word as God's revelation of Himself to us, and they read it to say, "Hey, what does this tell me about God? Why was God acting this way at this place and time? What was He dealing with? What can I learn about His methods and principles? A different way of looking." But on the other hand, today in in America. Uh, my premise is that American is, America is a Christian nation that is biblically illiterate. Most Christians have no clue what the Bible teaches. Do, do you agree or disagree with me on that? Yeah. So I say yes and no. So let's look at the time of Christ dealing with this idea of the confusion over Baal worship and how their names were, were, were exchanged back and forth between, for Yahweh and Baal. Um, when Christ came to earth, think about that time. The, the fertility rites and the human sacrifices and the polytheistic local God concepts had been eliminated from Israel's collective consciousness, if you will, by the time Christ came. But had all their distorted ideas of God's character been eliminated? No. no. Were they still worshiping Baal without doing all the former rituals? Yay or nay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were. This is, this is why Christ said to them, you're of your father, the devil. If you would have, you were Abraham's children, you would, you would love me. But because you hate me, you've accepted another God as your God. This is basically what he's saying. So into this setting, with all this confused God concept, with Israel not sure who really El is, who really uh, the, the, the husband of Israel is, with all this confusion over who really controls the weather and the thunder, Elijah steps into the scene as um, Jezebel has brought the the, the Tyre version of Baal to Israel in that form of worship. And so in Sunday's lesson, the first uh, section there that is dark, it says, what irony is found in the idea that God tells a kingdom that was worshiping the storm god that there would be no rain? What does it tell us about God's power in our world in contrast to every other power? Thoughts about that? I think God was trying to show how how impotent their Baal really was. 
Okay. Yes. And, and it seems similar to the plagues in Egypt as well. It, it demonstrates <clears throat> the futility of the other gods, that God really is the one. Yeah, you all y'all agree with that? Sure. What conclusions should we draw about this event in history, about our God? The God, the true God, the creator God, the God is revealed in Jesus. What conclusion should we draw? Should we draw the conclusion that because this transpired, because God intervened to show the impotence of Baal or Baal, that, um, that God is the, the one who brings famines and storms and pestilences and earthquakes to punish the inhabitants of the earth? Is that the conclusion we should draw, that God is like that? He was trying to reach those people where they were and their understanding. Okay, so Margaret's suggesting that what God was doing had nothing to do with, with punishing people. It had to do with enlightening people. It had, to, it had to do with taking a primitive people whose minds were very confused and darkened, who didn't have scripture, who didn't have uh, the, the insights that we have of history, didn't have the life of Christ yet to look at for their, for their uh, comparison, their template, their model of what God is like. He was trying to take this people who valued, and in, in, in my friend Brad Cole uses um, um, you know, dim light. They had dim light. And dim light is power. God exercising power is dim light. It's not bright light. Bright light is Jesus Christ's life. That's bright light. You all agree? And so God, uh, these people were very, very dark. Have you ever been in a very dark cave, anybody? Turn your flashlight off or maybe imagine you're in a dark cave and your batteries die and, and uh, you're trapped in there. And maybe three days later with no light, they rescue you. Now, when they bring you out, do you, do you want them to bring you out initially into bright light? Or do you want them to bring you out into dim light? Dim light. You can't handle the bright light, can you? Okay, well, these people couldn't handle bright light. That's what they did with the miners down in Chile. The mi- at night. Yes. And they had glasses on them even still. Yeah, but those were Elvis glasses then. <laughs> <laughs> so they brought them out at night down in the miners in Chile that were trapped down there for how long were they trapped? 60, 90 days they were in the dark. Yeah, and they brought them out at night. Yeah. This is the, Okay, so they put eye protection on those coming out in the daytime. But that's the same difference. Yeah. Yeah, same difference. And there's, of course, this is also a metaphor for what happens to the, to the wicked in the end. Uh, this is a, the, Malachi gives us a metaphor of this. It says the son of righteousness, S-U-N. The son of righteousness is, is rising with healing in his wings. Wings is King James. The Hebrew actually means the things that extend out from. And what is it that extend out from the S-U-N? And that's many of the modern translations say that he is rising with healing in his beams or healing in his rays. Now think that through. Again, the same metaphor. You're in that cave and they bring you out in bright sunlight, but no eye protection. What will you want to do? Run back into the cave? Okay, this is why when Christ comes, those who are not prepared run and hide from him, begging for things to fall on them. But for those of us right now, Christ is rising right now, rising with healing in his rays of truth. Those of us who have hearts and minds open to truth are assimilating truth. Our minds are being prepared because it says in John, 1 John, that when he comes, we shall see him face to face, for we shall be like him. How is it we become like him? It's that we are assimilating the light, the heavenly light that is rising as the sun is rising near the end of time. But those who prefer the lies of Satan, those who prefer the distorted God concepts, those who reject the light when he comes in the full glory, can't stand in his presence. They will run and hide and beg for the mountains to fall on them. So it's, this, it's the same metaphor. So 
What irony. So God is giving dim light because they can only handle dim light. He is using might and power. I agree with you. That's what he's doing. Do we draw the conclusion today that because God has done this to people in darkness and times and used dim light power to show the impotence of false gods, that God is the source of pestilence, famine, earthquakes, and so forth? Right now, there are several pastors and theologians in our local community who take strong opposition to what we teach in this class. And one of the reasons articulated is that they believe that God, in fact, will use his power uh, to inflict pestilence and famine and earthquake and, and human and, and, and natural disaster destruction on earth prior to his coming called the seven last plagues of Revelation. That is God's inflicting his energy and power to cause devastation upon man, to punish us for our wickedness and rebellion. Thoughts about that? Remember, we have two God concepts at war. Two God concepts at war. We just talked about how in Israel they they had the same name for for God as they did for the false gods, and it was confusing to them. We just talked about how in modern Christianity, and we read the quote from Ellen White, that many are worshiping a false god as much as they did Baal because they had distorted concepts about him in their mind. Um, this This is a place. Is this a... Which, 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 which presentation of God is really true? A God that will use his power to, to punish his children, to make them pay, pouring out plagues upon them, or is it something else? Yes. Well, he inflicted the flood. He inflicted the flood. Was that for the purpose of punishing or purpose of saving? See, the history of the world, is it true that as soon as Adam and Eve fell into sin, that without Jesus Christ coming and fulfilling his mission, that the human race would be eternally lost. Is that true? Okay. So regardless of who lived before the flood, who lived after the flood, if Jesus never comes, the whole human race is eternally lost, correct? Right. God gave the announcement in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman, meaning Christ, would come and crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. So right in Genesis 3, before there's a first child of Adam and Eve, we are promised a Savior. Did Satan know that that Savior had been promised? Yes. yes, because God was actually speaking to the serpent when he said that. So he told Satan that there's a Messiah coming to crush you. Do you think from that point on, Satan on earth remained idle and, and sitting back, twiddling his thumbs, or did he go on the offensive to try to prevent Messiah from coming? Now, what would be his strategies? If you were him, um, can Christ save us without becoming part of us? Or did he have to join the human race? He was made like his brethren in every way that he might, right? And he was tempted like us in every way. So he became part of us, born of a woman under law, according to Galatians 4.4. So if, would God force upon a woman the incarnation of his son on an involuntary woman who did not want to be part of that process? Would he force her? So would God have to have a human woman who would be voluntarily part of his kingdom and willing to participate in the salvation process? Sure. We have a record that she knew ahead of time what was going on. She knew, yes. Prior to getting pregnant, she knew the plan and what was going on and her part in that? I don't know that she uh, knew the entire plan of salvation, but she was visited by an angel. Okay. Wasn't the visitation after she was pregnant or before? I guess we'll have to check that. Do you think she was unwilling? No. I don't think she was willing, but I'm not sure that she gave prior consent. We'll, we can check the detail on that. This really, to me, that's really not relevant because she would have given prior consent if she would have known. I mean, the point is, I think we all... We all, we, the point is, if she had a heart that was opposed to God, would he have been able to use her for this purpose? So, back to the flood situation. How many people on earth were still even willing to cooperate or talk with God at the time of the flood? Well, If you count the eight that got on, you could say eight at the most. 
And so at this point in human history, had the avenue through which the Messiah could come to save humanity gotten very narrow? Yes. And was Satan working to destroy that avenue? And if he does, then God can't save us. So I see the flood as God acting not to punish, but to keep open the avenue through which Messiah will come so that the all could be saved. Additionally, we don't know that the, those who died in the flood will be lost for all eternity. All we know is they sleep in the grave waiting a resurrection. And we don't know that there wasn't some little girl who wanted to get on the ark, but daddy was mayor of the town and said, you're not going to embarrass me. That guy's a fool and locks her in her closet and won't let her out. I mean, we don't know that. God knows the heart. So at the second coming, when, when people are rit, rit, rose in the re, rise in the resurrection, we will then have insight into know who before the flood and afterwards. So I don't see God at the flood uh, punishing people for wickedness. I see him intervening in love to save humanity. Yes? What about uh, Ahab and Elijah, you know, the, the drought? Wasn't that puni- God punishing? We just, we're talking about that today. It's right on point. Uh, was God punishing or was God showing with dim light the impotence of serving Baal? that Baal is not a true god, just like the plagues of Egypt. Every one of the plagues of Egypt was an attack on one of the false gods. Nile, first one, the river to blood, the, the flies, the frogs, every one of these were, were gods that they worshipped. Um, was God simply punishing people of Israel, or was he showing that these false gods have no power over They don't bring the rain, they don't bring the fertility, it's from me, the true God. I, I think there's no punishment here, I think it's a demonstration to win their hearts, and I think it's, it's evidenced by coming to the end of the, of the drought, what's the end of the drought culminate with? A confrontation between, and the question from Elijah, who will you worship? If, if the Lord is, is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. So it was a confrontation between which God is the true God, I think was going on, and the, and the famine uh, or the drought set the stage to bring their minds to a decision point, on which point was God, on which true is God. It's fascinating what you shared with us about Baal, and he's the God of thunder and lightning, and then that culmination, that's, that's the sign that's, that's used, and certainly all the 400 prophets of Baal couldn't get one... Spark. spark to come and certainly God probably prevented Satan from faking that but um, it's interesting that that was that I never had heard that that's what he was and so and then the fire comes from heaven right so it only confirms further that Baal has no power over the elements right. so back to the question the question of revelation the, the plagues of revelation is this God punishing human habitation or something else going on in Revelation. What evidence do we have from Scripture and inspired sources to help us out with this? First, consider, consider character. We already talked in here today. How do you tell the difference between Baal, the false god Baal, and what Israel called Baal, the husband of Israel? How do we tell the difference between El, the father of the pantheon of the Canaanite false gods, or El, the father, uh, the god of Israel, El Shaddai El? How do we tell the difference between these two Els? How do we tell the difference between the, the Jesus Christ and, and, and his father that we love and worship and admire, and the false Christ who's coming and who's going to claim to be Jesus as an angel of light coming, right? How do we tell the difference between the two? Is it by their name or is it by their character, their methods, their principles? Yes. So, what methods do, sa- does Satan use? Look at history. What methods does Satan use first in heaven on the angels? Deceit and flattery. Lies, deceit, and so on. And, and, and so, you'll notice that Satan's methods are to get conversion. Satan wants to convert people to admire and worship him and to distrust God. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to convert. He uses the methods of deception and flattery, which worked on a third of the angels. What methods did he use on Adam and Eve? Deception. Deceit, flattery. Okay, it worked on them. They were converted. 
Now, if conversion doesn't work, what comes next? We look at Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ went into the wilderness, what method did the devil approach him with first? Deception. Flattery. And then, um, a certain, there's different types of coercive pressure. There is the positive coercive pressure, inducements. And we see, if you worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. I'll give you power. I'll give you wealth. I'll give you fame. I'll give you something. I will buy your loyalty. So we see Satan's methods. Uh, I will buy you. If that doesn't work, it didn't work with Christ, then we see next what comes. Coercive pressure, threats. And then if that doesn't work, what happens? Execution and crucifixion. Well, let's look to the Dark Ages. There's a, a church of the Dark Ages that darkened the world with distortions about God, and they sent their missionaries out all over the world to do what? To convert. And they converted with distorted concepts about God. And if local inhabitants worshipped another God and they wouldn't convert, what came next? Coercive pressure. If they could put any type of um, you know, embargoes or financial pressures on them, they would do that. And if they still wouldn't convert, then what? Then then execution. Then came you know the conquering, invading powers to destroy those who wouldn't convert. And then we're taught, talked about told about a beast system coming in the future that will have first this angel comes as an angel of light, speaking melodious words. We're told in Great Controversy uh, to flatter and to uh, and to perform miracles and to convert. And if there are discerning people on earth who will not convert, we're told that no one can buy or sell. Save him who has the mark of the beast. Coercive pressure. And then if they still save loyal, then they're imprisoned and a death penalty comes. Do you see, uh, the, do you see through history Satan's methods at work? Now we're told there's a God in heaven who loves you. He sent, he sent his angels, his son, and his missionaries, you and I, out to convert. With truth, of course. No deception this time, just truth. But if you don't convert, God uses his power to put pressure on you, to coerce you. And if you don't, if you still don't convert, then God in holiness and justice will be forced to kill you in the end, but he will torture you appropriately first. Is there really any difference between this picture of God and Satan's methods through history? This is one of the, the lies told. It's one of the infections in our church that we need to rid ourselves of. We need to see God as Jesus revealed him to be. And so... Do we have evidence for Scripture that what I'm suggesting is correct, or is this just philosophical argument, human reason at work? Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Notice the, the, what's being described here. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth doing something. What, what, what action are they taking? Notice, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on land or on the sea or on the, any tree. Then I saw another angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out to the, the four angels who had been given a power. Now notice this. These four angels, what are they doing? Holding, Holding back. But what is their power? They've been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put the seal on the forehead of the servants of our God. Now if, if their active work is to hold back winds of strife, but their power is to harm, how do you think they're going to harm? By letting go of what they're holding back. Okay? And what do you think they're holding back? We have evidences from Scripture of God of God's angels holding back. How about in the book of Job? Where God's angels holding back something? How about in Elisha's day when the Syrian army came, where God's angels holding back something? Yes. When God lets go his restraint, 
we see where destruction comes from. And we have in Scripture, Scripture definitions of God's wrath. Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's active present tense. In Paul's day, God's wrath is being revealed against all godlessness. And then Paul tells us in 24, 26, 28 what God is doing. Because they reject the truth about God, because they accept false God concepts into their mind, because they prefer images made with their own hands to the truth about God, therefore God gave them up. Let them go. Therefore, God gave them up and let them go. Therefore, God gave them up and let them go to their own darkened minds. This is God's wrath. And so when the wrath of God, when the seven vials of God's wrath are going to be poured out on the earth, what do you think is happening? It's God letting go and letting go a little more and letting go a little more. It's the four angels letting go of their restraint, letting go of their restraint a little more, letting go of their restraint a little more. And the devil has freedom more and more. Now, why would God do this? Why would he let go? Where is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on earth? Hearts and minds of men. We are the temple of the Spirit. When individual human beings choose to close their heart against the Holy Spirit, will he force his way back into that temple? How about when millions, when billions of human beings will not let the Holy Spirit into their heart? Where is the Holy Spirit going to dwell on earth? The Holy Spirit will be withdrawn. God is withdrawn, not because God is arbitrary, not because God has set some cosmic timeline, ollie, ollie, in free, here I come, ready or not. It's not why. It's because we close our hearts and minds. There's no way it's left for him on earth. And as the Holy Spirit is withdrawn, his restraining power is letting go, and Satan gets more and more freedom on earth to act. There's a reason for this too. In universal history thus far, in the history of earth, has Satan yet been able to govern earth? No. Unrestrained. He claims earth as his prince of the earth, you know. Claims earth as his prize. Claims earth as his way of doing things. Now imagine you're cooking your kitchen for this Thanksgiving weekend and you're working on your favorite recipe that the family loves and you have a five-year-old that every time you start putting something in, they just grab stuff and throw in your recipe. They're grabbing all kinds of stuff out of the cupboard and throwing in. If the recipe doesn't turn out, do people look at you and say, you're a bad cook. Would you take responsibility for that? you say, look, if, if, if things weren't thrown in that I didn't intend, it would be fine. You think Satan looks at the universe and said, look, if God would keep his fingers out of my pie, left me alone down here, he was messing with me the whole time. Things would go great down here if I had the right to rule. What's going to happen? God's going to re- remove his restraint on Satan. He's going to give him freedom to govern this earth except with his individual protection over his individual person saints. But the rest of the earth is going to be in Satan's hands. And guess what happens to earth? The seven last plagues, the whole earth, this chaos. The earth, which was chaos, was when God created, brought, brought cosmos or order out of chaos. This cosmos and order that God created, when it's in Satan's hand, goes back into chaos. That's what happens. And you're going to see that. We're going to be here to, to, to watch that. Now here's, a, a, uh, again, another quote from one of the founders of our church. Manuscript releases, volume 14, page 3 talking about the judgments of God at the end of time, the seven last plagues. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They placed themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the objects of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attacks upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, 
bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be. For Satan has come down in great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we have ever dreamed of. Wow. Two God concepts at work, people. Two God concepts struggling in our minds, taught in our own church. We have a God of love and great compassion and great mercy, a self-sacrificing God, a God who put himself into human form to redeem and save us. And we also have this other thing, this coercive thing, this thing of power, this thing of lording over, this dominating, crushing power. Which, which do you prefer? Which do you think is true? And I'll tell you, in our church, this other idea is pervasive. And our church, my position is, our church cannot finish its mission to lighten the world for Christ's coming as long as we teach this other idea about God. We have to get rid of it. And there are strong opposition, huge opposition, against us within our church in this message. Because there are strong individuals in leadership who want this message about an an angry, wrathful, punitive God to be taught. So Elijah flees to to Zarephath and encounters a widow and her son. Uh, He asks, asks her to feed him. She only has enough flour and oil for one more cake. Elijah has no food with him. And then the bottom section... Uh, uh, of Sunday's lesson. It's important to note that God uses the prophet's need to reach out to the woman in a far and far off Zarephath. Uh, As believers in Jesus, we do not have to project a perfect front to all those around us. We do not have to cover up our problems or pretend that we have no needs because we are, as we all know, that's just not true. As Christians, we still suffer, we still hurt, we still need at times the solace and help of others who, in fact, might not be of our faith or of any faith at all. Wow, that's pretty enlightened, don't you think? What do you think about that? That we as Christians, believers, those who trust the Lord, have problems. And that it's okay to admit we have problems. Do you feel it's okay and safe in the church to talk about your problems? Yeah? Can you go to your brother and sister in the church and confide about your problems? Do you know that statistics show that more than 50% of Christian homes struggle with pornography in the home? More than half. Did you all know that? Do you think the Adventist church is immune from that? Do you think somebody struggling with a problem like that would feel comfortable talking about that problem with their brother and sister at church. Condemned. Condemned, yes. Yes, condemned. Kicked out, somebody said. Should we? So, so the lesson suggesting maybe we have to seek help outside the church, like Elijah did. Elijah sought help from a non, non-Jewish woman. Monday's lesson. Elijah's at the river Cherith until it ran dry. While, the, while there, he was fed... The Bible says by ravens. Any thoughts on that? Anybody ever research that? The Hebrew, uh, and I've got this, this in the notes. So who wants to get the notes? Notes will be online. But you'll notice uh, from, the, uh, uh, from the, let's see, from the strong uh, exhaustive uh, concordance and, and uh, lexicon that the word for raven and the word for Arab is the exact same Hebrew word. 
Mm-hmm. And so some people suggest that he was fed by Arabs, uh, not by ravens. Um, some people, most, most people dispute that and prefer the raven's version. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is from Ellen White. I'm going to read you a couple of quotations because I was researching this. There's some, if you've ever, never been on the Internet and, and searched some of these things, there are some websites out there that attack Ellen White. Did you know that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding, he said. No. And I found a couple of those related, and, and they were emphasizing one of the things. They have a long list of things. This is one of the things, the, the story of the ravens they, they emphasize. And, 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 they, and they suggest that she's a false prophet or a false messenger because of the way she describes the story. I'm going to give you three places that she describes it. This is Review, Review, Review and Herald, August 28, 1913, two years before her death. For a time after appearing before Ahab, Elijah remained hidden in the mountains of the brook of Cherith. There he was fed morning and evening by an angel from heaven. Later on, when he became to so forth, so we went on to Zarephath. And then three testimonies, page 288. After his first appearance in, uh, to Ahab, denouncing upon him the judgments of God because of, Israel, uh, because of his and Israel's apostasy, God directed his course from uh, Jezebel's power to a place of safety in the mountains by the brook of Cherith. There he honored Elijah by sending food to him morning and evening by an angel from heaven. And then out of Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 110. That God who sent the ravens to feed Elijah by the brook of Cherith will not pass by one of his faithful self-sacrificing children. And people will suggest, aha, she contradicts scripture in those two first ones because scripture says ravens, not angels, so she's contradicting scripture. And aha, she contradicts her own self. She can't even get it right. She, she, she waffles back and forth. How would you argue that? What would you say? These are quotes. No one disputes. She made all these quotes. Did an angel come in the form of a raven? Did an angel come in the form of a raven? First question. Well, angel, somebody had to direct those ravens. I mean, think this through. Just put, put, engage, your, engage your mind here and think. Put yourself in that. Um, people make big deal out of this. I think it's a, it's a very human-contrived uh, issue. It's, I don't think there's an issue here at all. Um, what about the idea that somebody's suggesting that angels were used to direct the ravens as an angel dealt and spoke through Balaam's donkey? Now, in the context, do we really think that um, if ravens uh, brought this food to Elijah, that they figured it out and planned it up on their own? <laughs> I mean, do we really think that ravens milled the flour and baked the bread and brought this to Elijah? Or, in the time of drought lasting over three years, how hungry would the birds likely be? <laughs> and do we really think that in such a situation there was some baker that was leaving his baked goods out laying around for ravens to come and steal? And if the ravens did come and steal, because we have this careless baker in a time of a tremendous drought and, and famine everywhere, leaving his baked goods around, do you think that the ravens would just simply pick it up and fly it over to, uh, to Elijah every day on their own, or would they be eating this stuff? So, uh, even if it was real birds, which I'm okay with, bringing it to Elijah, would those birds not have to have been guided by an intelligence? Would there not have been some restraint over the natural inclinations of what those birds would want to do with that food? And why not angels? Doesn't the Bible tell us in Hebrews that God's angels are his ministering spirits to us on earth? I don't find this a stretch at all. I find complete harmony here. And so people make a lot to do about nothing trying to undermine confidence in someone who has got tremendous biblical insights. And as I, as I always say about those when you read Ellen White, oh, don't believe anything Ellen White said because she wrote it. 
You read it, you compare it with Scripture, you think it through, and if it's credible, if it's truth-based, if it makes sense, then you believe it, but not because she wrote it. Isn't that right? Yeah. So after leaving the book, uh, the brook, Elijah goes to the widow and asks her for food. She says, As surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Does, how does she sound to you? Woman with great hope for the future? <laughs> Discouraged, hopeless, about to give up? Elijah's response, here's what he says to her. Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. And then in Tuesday's lesson, following up on this story, Tuesday's lesson, the last paragraph, uh, the last two paragraphs, it says, Remember that throughout this story, the prophet really is standing in as a representative of God. By asking the woman for her last bread, the prophet is inviting her to take a leap of faith to surrender all she has. When we give God everything we have, we always gain in the end. The woman originally had enough for only one meal. In giving that meal to the prophet first, this pagan woman reached out in raw faith, trusting in what she could not see or understand. In a sense, isn't that what faith is all about? Trusting in a God we can't see and in the promises that we don't, uh, that we don't fully understand. What's amazing, too, is that this isn't even an Israelite woman, but a woman from a pagan land who practiced a degrading form of worship. And yet God somehow communicated with her, and she responded in faith, doing what she had been commanded to do, despite how foolish, from a worldly perspective, her actions might have seemed. Thoughts about that? That, that form of logic there, that, that logic trail that we just read. Thoughts about that? Not exactly answering that question, but as I look at this whole miracle, several miracles in the story, I think of all these people that want to say, um, why aren't there more miracles today? Why aren't we seeing healings and miracles and people brought back from the dead, whatever? Um, is, is the answer then related to your concept of dim light, that those happen in areas of dim light? Exactly the answer. What do we have that they didn't have back then? We have scripture. We have the truth. We have, we have the evidence of history. And what is it that sets minds free? What did Jesus say? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A truth stands on its own. Truth itself cannot be counterfeited. It can be twisted. It can be, it can be um, lied, and, and people can try to misrepresent the truth. But the truth itself cannot be counterfeited. What can be counter- Miracles can be counterfeited. A serpent speaking is a miracle. But that doesn't mean what the serpent is saying is true. We are told that at the end of time, as Satan's power increases on earth, as the Spirit of God is withdrawn, as the restraint is loosened on him, that three demons in the form of frogs come out of the mouth and miracles are performed, deceiving the nations of the world. So Satan is going to have more power to perform miracles on earth. And so miracles are a very bad evidence for us to rest our, our confidence in. So this is why, because it's, it's increasing powers to deceive. Our confidence is in God based on the truth of who he is, his character, his nature, his methods, the laws of the way his government works. This is where we base our confidence, not in the fact that a miracle happens or doesn't happen. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so back to our question. What do you think about those last two paragraphs? It says that the woman 
was foolish from a worldly perspective. This was foolishness for her to trust in him. I don't get that concept at all. You see, she had been suffering from years of drought, had she not? She had no husband, no income, no resources. She had spent most of her time scouring the countryside for any scrap of food or sustenance she could have. Do do you think she has a real sense of what is available for her to survive on in this world? And how much is out there? Nada. Nothing. She's got that. From a worldly perspective, what is the likelihood of her survival on her own? None. From a worldly perspective, what is the likelihood of her survival if she eats one more piece of bread? She's Does it really add any significance to her survival? One more piece of bread? No. No. From a worldly perspective, do new possibilities open up for her if she shows kindness to a powerful man? Who controls everything in that society? Powerful men. Might his words be true and a miracle happen? Might he merely be indebted to her for her kindness and seek to help her? So from a worldly perspective, was it really foolish for her to help him given her situation and circumstance? I don't think it was foolish at all. It was a very, very calculated move on her part to, to potentially join forces with someone powerful. But let's keep going. From a worldly perspective, um, no, by the way, and just because there were potentially objective earthly reasons for her to consider Elijah's request as reasonable, does that remove the possibility she'd, she would also have faith? doesn't remove faith, does it? Just because there are objective reasons. So could she have been familiar with the events transpiring in Israel? Might she have heard the reasons for the drought? Might she have heard the all-points bulletin Ahab put out for Elijah. Wasn't there an all-points bulletin for, for Elijah out? The, the king's soldiers had been scouring the countryside from day one, searching for Elijah everywhere. Had she heard about Elijah defying the king and calling for a drought? And now this man who defies Baal, defies Ahab, uh, calls for a drought, the heavens are closed up, is standing before her and says, make me a little cake and your oil and your flour won't run dry. What do you make of the verse that says that God says, I have commanded a widow there to take care of you? <clears throat> so how, how did God communicate with her of what she was to do when she met Elijah? Uh, that communication was to Elijah or to the widow? To the widow. He's speaking to Elijah. I have commanded a, a widow there to take care of you. But he says, I have commanded her. Yeah, who's he speaking to? He's, he is speaking to Elijah. Right. But it sounds like he has, he has somehow... Let her know. Again, who is he speaking to? So these, these words that we're having recorded here are for the benefit of Elijah. So they were to help Elijah have confidence to know that where he was going, he would be taken care of. You don't think God somehow communicated with the widow? Uh, if, she, if he did, if he did, and the widow was already told, Elijah's on his way, prepare for him. I've commanded you to take care of him. Do you think when Elijah arrives, she says, I'm about to eat my last meal and I'm going to die? Or do you say, thank God you're here. I've been waiting for you. I've got a meal already. (laughs) Maybe through a life of submission, the widow was sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Oh, I agree with that. That's exactly right. I like what you said. She said maybe through the life of submission, maybe through, even though this woman hadn't had 
hadn't had the knowledge of the true God through Israel. She lived up to the light she had. Uh, she was sensitive to the movements of the Spirit of God. This goes to Romans chapter 2, verse 12. Those who have not heard the law, but do by nature the things contained in the law, are law unto themselves, showing that law has been written on their hearts. New covenant experience. The Holy Spirit works to write on the hearts and minds of those who are honest in heart. So yes, I agree with you. I think you're right on. And I think that's how she was prepared, because God knew there was an honest worker who was sensitive to his spirit and would follow the light. And God knew also, as we talked about last week, God had foreknowledge. He knew what she was going to do when Elijah presented. He knew her decisions. Yes? I think there's many times that messages come to us from God, and we don't understand the full implication of those messages. Oh, excellent. Excellent. We get messages from God that, that we don't understand the full implication. Do, do prophets understand the full me- meaning of their prophecies? Not, <laughs> Not usually. Daniel was praying all the time for more insight, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, so the, the lesson is telling us, or suggesting the idea, that if we're faithful, we should have raw, blind, naked faith. Well, we read a story last week about the old and the young prophet. Didn't that young prophet had some raw, blind faith in what the old prophet said? The old prophet says, I'm a prophet of the Lord. The Lord has come to me. Angel of the Lord came to me. He said, come back and eat with me. And that prophet didn't question a thing. He just had raw, blind, naked faith, and he went. And what happened? The lion got him. Bad move. I'm suggesting that this woman's faith was an intelligent faith, that she had given enough evidence uh, through the events that had transpired and through her experiences in life thus far, that her faith was intelligently applied in this circumstance. It was not a blind, incredulous, foolish, non-thinking faith. It was very thoughtful. And that's the kind of faith God wants us to have, an intelligent faith based on the evidences that he has provided for us. Remember, the battle between Christ and Satan is for our minds. For our minds. And, and that requires you to engage. Come, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. God is telling you, reason with me. All truth is on my side. Wrestle it out. And if you, if you allow my Holy Spirit to work with you in this process, light will shine into your mind. You will see the errors. The, the, the lies will be kicked out of your mind about who I am. You will have a new heart and a right spirit. It's wrestling out the truth and reasoning with God that he, he cleanses us from sin. Oh boy, we have so much to, to cover yet in such little time. Time is just flying by. Okay, um, other questions about that? Oh, Wednesday's lesson. Uh, second paragraph, Wednesday's lesson. It says, Through the prophet Elijah, the widow came into contact with God. As we come into contact with a holy God, our sins become more apparent. And then, uh, when something terrible happens, we may feel that the Lord is punishing us. Uh, in First Kings 17, the widow blames God's prophet uh, for being there and consequently bringing her uh, to God's notice. So again, this would go back to the question um, raised by Margaret. God had commanded her to do this, but now as soon as something bad happens, she's all over. Hey, if you wouldn't have come here, God wouldn't have noticed me. Well, if he'd already commanded her and talked to her, he'd already noticed her before he got there. Okay? So, uh, so but the, you know the story. The widow's son dies. And she's all distraught and, and saying, you know, God is punishing for my wickedness and sin. And Elijah, of course, lays on the boy, prays very hard, and the boy's resurrected and lives again. Um, the lesson is suggesting that it's because of the closeness of God's holiness that she becomes convicted of her sin and blames uh, you know, her sinfulness for this. What distorted ideas about God do we have in this process? That God punishes because we're sinful. That's this, her background. Right, that's her background. That's the pagan background. Pagan God concepts have angry, wrathful, punishing gods. They see it in a legalistic connotation. 
the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that by his stripes we are healed. Healed. Salvation is a healing process. God looks down on us like a doctor looks down on a patient who has maybe violated the laws of health. Maybe he smoked a whole lot of times, broken the laws that health are based upon, uh, and now he's got cancer, and the, the patient comes to the doctor, and what does the doctor say? Well, you've broken the laws of health. I'm required by justice to punish you. You must be punished for your crimes of smoking. No, the doctor says, I'll do everything I can to heal you. I'll do everything I can. Yes. Things haven't changed a lot because people still ask, why me? Why me? Why me? Same same thing she asked, why me? And then she took it from there and concluded God was angry with her. Right. And if you have that filter already that God punishes for sin, why me? Bad something happened. Well, God must be punishing me. I have something bad in my life. But if we have a different filter, God is seeking to save us from sin. God is seeking to heal us from sin. God is seeking to redeem us, to restore us, to regenerate us, to recreate us. He's not seeking to punish us for it, but to deliver us from it. Wow, what a difference, right? And this is, this is the way I understand it, that God is angry not at the sinner, uh, but like a doctor who's angry at cancer and wants to destroy cancer, or like uh, the doctor who wants to destroy the polio virus, so no more polio, okay? God wants to destroy sin because sin destroys that which he loves. Mm. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have sent Jesus Christ to reveal the truth that you are a loving, patient, gracious, uh, benevolent God who seeks only to to restore us to to perfection and unity with you. Lord, help our minds get clear on this issue, that we can articulate and communicate the true God concept, that we can, in our church, that our church can be freed from these distortions that are inhibiting our ability to fulfill your purpose, to lighten the world for your coming, because we want to see you soon, Lord. Enable us, prepare us, and bless us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.